Good evening, church. As Pastor Dave mentioned, and as as we've uh, announced for a few weeks now, uh, today does mark the beginning of our study on the patristics for the month of October, which we affectionately refer to here as Reformation Month. Uh, Now, as we embark on this month-long journey, I thought it would be helpful to address three questions as we start which I believe will serve us well, and perhaps these are some of the questions that have crossed some of your minds. First, why study the patristics during the Reformation month? Because after all, it's called Reformation month for a reason. Why not study the men like Calvin or Luther or Zwingli or even Owen or Watson or Rutherford? Well, being that we do often study the Reformers here at Pillar, what we need to consider is the fact that just as we owe a great deal to the Protestant Reformers, the Reformers owed a great deal to the Patristics. It was to these early church fathers that many of the Reformers looked to and depended upon and deeply loved. They cherished them. For example, John Calvin, although... He didn't always agree with everything they said, was nonetheless an avid student of the patristics. He was often found drawing from their work for knowledge and thought and application, often quoting their works to defend orthodoxy. Even as we examine the next era, the Puritans like John Owen, we find that he frequently visited and turned to the works of Augustine of Hippo, who he affectionately often referred to as uh, Holy Austin. All this to say, for us to study the Reformers apart from the patristics would not only leave us with the partial understanding of who these men really were and what they truly believed, but it would also be a great disservice to the neglect and to neglect the rich treasures of teaching from those who are at the very forefront in the battle in defending orthodoxy. Rightfully, Spurgeon wrote that it seems odd that certain men who talk so much of what the Holy Spirit reveals to themselves should think so little of what He has revealed to others. And so it's for us not to elevate the patristics nor to neglect the patristics, but to learn how God, through these faithful men who've gone before us, how God has protected and preserved His church. Second, who exactly were the early church fathers? Although there's no official list of who the patristics were, there are at least four common distinct characteristics that qualify one to hold the title of church father. First, their orthodoxy of doctrine. Second, their being accepted by the church as important links in the transmission of the Christian faith. Third, their having lived between the end of the apostolic era. And fourth, their personal holiness of life and ministry. Which then leads us to the last and perhaps the most important question to address, which is, why should we even study the patriarchs? Why study such Old men. And the best way to answer this question is by presenting another question. And so I want to ask, do we owe anything to our fathers, our parents? And do our parents owe anything to their parents? And this question might seem obvious and perhaps even foolish, but there's an application here and there's a reason why I ask that question. Because many Christians today often act and think and even believe that they owe absolutely nothing to the past and to the historic church of Christ. And the phrase that we often so find on the lips of Christians today is, me and my Bible. Heard this all the time, right? Me and my Bible, me and my Bible. It's my personal relationship with Christ. That's all there is and that's all that matters and that's that. Now this is the kind of mentality and outlook 
when it seeps into the mind that then leads you into believing that you owe nothing to those that came before us. That you can leave behind the rich history of the church to simply focus on what God is doing now in the present. Generally speaking, it's been well said from a historian that a country without a history is like a man without a memory. And what I'm trying to communicate here by saying all of these things is just as amnesia is unnatural, is an unnatural disease to the mind, historical amnesia is a disease to the church. Christians without a history are no better off than nations without theirs. So again, why should we study the patristics? And here's my answer. It's because it's our job as the church of Christ to cure Christians of their amnesia and to give back to the people of God their memories of who they really are and where they've come from. As a church, we've been tasked with the work of uprooting what C.S. Lewis once coined as chronological snobbery. This arrogant presumption that our generation knows better than those that came and went before us. And the cure to this disease is not by ignoring the past, but by studying our forefathers in the faith and to carefully observe their lives and their deeds, their worship, their writings, and even all of their controversies. And so this is exactly what we'll be doing for the next few weeks to come and I hope that you're just as excited as I am to learn more about the early church. Now, when it comes to the period of the early church, it's usually thought of as beginning only after the apostles. In other words, when the apostles have passed away from the scene and a new generation stepped into their shoes, it's only then at that point where we have the crossover from the apostolic church to the early church. But when we really get down to it and closely examine this transition, uh, what we would find is that the line between the apostolic church to the early church isn't actually as clear as we think it to be. It's quite muddy. The major yet simple reason being that the apostle John died as late as 110 A.D., which by that time we would have already seen some of the first early church fathers already active and ministering during those times. And so again, we find that the bounds, that, that, that line between apostolic church history and early church history to be blurred together. Though there was no clean break between these two eras, what we can, however, distinguish is that the familiar names of Peter, James, John, and Paul gave way to the less familiar names such as Polycarp and Irenaeus and Athanasius and Augustine of Hippo. We would find that one generation actually bled into the other, just like how one season of the year transitions into the next. But the, perhaps the biggest blur, or if I can put it, the bridge that connected the apostolic church to the early church, I would argue, comes by the name Polycarp of Smyrna, the man, as you see, we'll be focusing on tonight. The reason being that Polycarp was personally discipled and mentored by none other than the Apostle John. Irenaeus of Lyon, the greatest of the second century patristics, who was actually taught by Polycarp, he writes an account of his disciples' relationship with John, and he writes this. I can tell the very place in which the blessed Polycarp used to sit when he preached his sermons. How he came in and he went out. The manner of his life, what he looked like, the sermons that he delivered to his people and how he used to report his association with John and the others who had seen the Lord, how he would relate their words and the things concerning the Lord he had heard from them about his miracles and his teachings. Polycarp had received all this from eyewitnesses of the word of life 
And he related all of these things in accordance with Scripture. I listened eagerly to these things at the time by God's mercy which bestowed, which was bestowed upon me. And I made notes of them, not on paper, but in my heart. Now before we progress any further and jump into shifting our attentions to Polycarp, let me quickly open us up in a word of prayer and we'll begin. Bow with me for prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us this opportunity to study this month. And as we embark on this new series in studying the patriarchs, we look past these men to find and recognize your sovereign hand behind all things and how you've perfectly upheld and preserved your bride, the church, until today. As we spend our time together tonight in examining the life and legacy of your servant Polycarp, assist us not only to focus on how he lived, but who he lived for. Not just how he lived, but who he died for. Bless this time now, we ask for our good and for your glory. We pray this in the name of our beloved Savior, Christ Jesus. Amen. To begin, please open up your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 2. And we'll begin by reading this passage. Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. Revelation 2.8, Apostle John writes this, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer, Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches and he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. As I've already mentioned, Polycarp was personally mentored and tutored by the very disciple of Jesus, the Apostle John. Not only was he taught by John, but it was John and some of the other apostles who personally assigned Polycarp to be the bishop, the overseer of the church located in Smyrna. The very same Smyrna that we read of here in Revelation 2 verse 8. With this in mind, what we come to quickly recognize is that when John, moved by the Holy Spirit, when he penned the book of Revelation in 95 AD on the island of Patmos, as he was writing about the fierce tribulations and persecutions that were to come and and to destroy and hurt the church of Smyrna, there's no doubt that John had Polycarp, his beloved student, in his mind. In seeing this connection between the apostolic era to the patristic, this bridge of a relationship between John and Polycarp, the question that presents itself then is, who is Polycarp? Where did Polycarp come from and why is he so monumental in the history of the church? And to answer these questions, there are three points that I want to cover tonight. Uh, Three areas of Polycarp that I want for us to examine as we meet and familiarize ourselves with this man. The three areas of his life that we'll be considering tonight are, first, his life and ministry. Second, his martyrdom. And lastly, third, his legacy. First, Polycarp's life and ministry. Polycarp was born and raised in the same city that he would later become the bishop in Smyrna. He was born into a Christian household and, he, and we read that both of his parents were publicly recognized as faithful believers, most likely converted and saved under the same ministry of Apostle John. 
And it's even been said, and I can't verify if this is true or not, but it's been said that Polycarp's parents gave him that very name distinctly because of John. Now, the name Polycarp is an interesting name. It's a very uncommon name. And more often than not, people assume that Polycarp's name means many fish. Poly, many, and uh, uh, carp, fish. And Evan actually ran up to me and he said, is Polycarp a Pokemon? And I said, no. But his name actually derives from the Greek, Paulus Karpas, meaning much fruit. And when we consider the meaning of Polycarp, his name in light of John's gospel, the very verse that comes to mind is John 15:5, where Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches, he who abides in me and I in him bears what? Much fruit. Paulus Karpas. As parents, many of you know that we can spend days and weeks and if not months leading up to the birth of our children and just trying to find and choose a fitting name for our children, a name that we would hope as parents for our children to live up to or become or reflect. And this was no different for Polycarp's parents. In giving Polycarp his name, His parents prayed often for and desired for him to be a boy, a man who would would be deeply rooted in Christ, a man who would live to bear much fruit for the Lord and his kingdom. And it was his parents who were often recognized for instilling in Polycarp a strong moral compass, often teaching him about the importance of compassion and kindness, demonstrating the love of Christ and how he lived and carried himself about in the public which would actually go on to greatly influence him in his ministry later on. Well, the Lord answered his parents' prayers as Polycarp did come to Christ and was saved at a very young age and immediately began to sit under Apostle John's ministry. And it was there under John's tutelage that Polycarp began to consume all the amazing things that Jesus had done how he had healed the sick, how he had opened the eyes of the blind to see, fed the thousands, made the lame to walk, and best of all, how Jesus had made a way for salvation for sinners. As a youngling, Polycarp dedicated himself into saturating all of John's teachings and to commit himself to the reading of Holy Scripture, both the Old Testament and the apostolic letters alike keeping in mind that some of the New Testament books were still being written and passed around during this time. This to say, in making a full circle back to the book of Revelation, that as John wrote the book of Revelation, and as he had Polycarp, his student, probably in his mind while addressing the church of Smyrna, It was most likely Polycarp himself on the other end of that letter who personally personally received John's revelation as it made its way around the churches. It's a pretty amazing thought. Apart from John, the two other men who are often associated with Polycarp are Irenaeus of Lyon and Ignatius of Antioch. Just as John discipled Polycarp, Polycarp discipled Irenaeus, who I mentioned would then go on to be greatly used by God in the second century as the great defender of orthodoxy and warrior against the rising heresies threatening the church. Now, I'm not going to get into all that because Pastor Eric is going to address that next week in his uh, bio of Irenaeus, uh, but uh, as we think about the man Ignatius, who was an older bishop in Antioch, Polycarp considered him to be the most amazing man next to John. He had a high view of Ignatius. A man who would later on actually end up playing a significant role in preparing and equipping Polycarp for his execution after he actually passed away. Which is where we transition to our second point. Polycarp's execution or martyrdom. 
Though the personal life of Polycarp is unfortunately bound by textual limitations, his martyrdom, however, is probably one of the most well-documented in the early church. To quickly set some context here, unlike the 2nd and 3rd century, prior to Constantine and the Edict of Milan, a time when Christians were being actively pursued and sought out to be killed and slaughtered, uh, the first century, however, was a strange time for the church. It was a period when the Roman government was trying to figure out how to deal with these so-called Christians. Uh, they would often ask, these Roman governors would ask one another if Christians should be punished for their crimes, if they even had any, or if they should be punished simply for the fact that they called themselves Christians. In the most famous letter that we have today regarding this confusing matter that they dealt with is a letter written by Pliny the Younger, the Roman governor of Bithynia. And in this letter, most likely due to a guilty conscience that he was feeling upon himself, Pliny asks, he writes his letter, and he asks Emperor Trajan to verify if his executions of these Christians in his jurisdiction were justified or not. The reason being that Pliny generally saw these Christians to be a harmless group of people who were actually, objectively speaking, perhaps the most outstanding citizens in his society. And the only charge that he could think of to be used against them was that they refused to recant their faith and their obedience to Christ. And so Pliny, he writes this, you want to read along. He writes, the substance of their fault was that they were in the habit of meeting on a fixed day, the Lord's Day, before daylight and reciting responsively among themselves a hymn to Christ as God. These Christians, they bound themselves by an oath not to commit any crime, but to abstain from theft, robbery, and adultery. All good things, if you ask me. In a brief response to Pliny, Trajan, the emperor, then went on to create arguably one of the most controversial policies at that time, declaring that the state shouldn't waste any time in actively seeking out Christians, but if any Christians were to be accused and brought before the proconsul, if they refused to recant their faith, then they were to be killed. In other words... This was a policy that communicated that Christians were allowed to freely worship God in public. But if anyone were to decide to bring a simple charge against any Christian, then they were to be killed. This was a horrible policy that made absolutely no sense. But as we consider this policy in the context of the first century, the context of Polycarp, the question that comes to mind is, if you had to almost seemingly go out of your way to accuse a Christian to be tried and to be brought before the state, then who accused Polycarp? How did Polycarp end up standing before the proconsul to be tried? Well, the story goes, and it all begins with a young man by the name of Germanicus. Germanicus. There's not much known about him except for the fact that he himself was accused by someone for being a Christian and was on the brink of being torn apart limb by limb by wild beasts. And as he stood before the proconsul who was trying with all of his best efforts, trying to persuade this young Germanicus to abandon the faith and to take pity on his young age, it's been recorded by an eyewitness there that in his unwavering faith to the Lord, Germanicus proceeded to completely ignore the words of the judge. And he began to walk up to the wild beasts as if to attract and to welcome the, the wild animals to kill him. And as you can imagine, to the shock of the crowd who were watching, wanting to see with every part of their bodies, to see Germanicus buckle under all the pressure. They began to respond with anger and a greater hostility for the Christian people. It angered them. And the same eyewitness there, 
He then writes, But upon this the whole multitude, marveling at the nobility of mind displayed by the devout and godly race of these Christians, cried out, Away with these Christians! Away with these Christians! Let Polycarp be found! Thus beginning the manhunt for our dear Polycarp. As word began to quickly spread, the news eventually made its way to the now elderly Polycarp, who was at this time 86 years old. He was an old man. And to no surprise, upon hearing the news, he didn't care. <laughs> he didn't care. He paid no mind at all, but was resolved to remain in that very city to continue to minister to the Smyrnians. However, as determined as he was to stay to the wish of many who so loved and cared for him, he was forcibly moved to a country house not far outside the city of Smyrna. And it was there where Polycarp spent much of his time on his knees in prayer. And during one of those occasions while he was in prayer, it's been noted that Polycarp paused and he turned to those who were with him and he told them almost prophetically that he, that he must be burned alive in only a few short days. Well, as you would expect, three days later, after being outed by a few young men who were tortured to, to confess his location, Polycarp was finally captured and brought forth to stand trial before the proconsul. And the judge who presided over his trial as it was custom, it was typical, he attempted to persuade Polycarp to worship the emperor. When Polycarp refused, the judge then proceeded to order him to turn around. Uh, he, he ordered him to turn around to his fellow Christians uh, who were watching him with tears in their eyes, and he ordered him to cry out to them, out with the atheists, out with the atheists. And the, the reason why the Roman judge, he said that to them, is because the Romans at this time, they considered Christians to be the atheists of society as they outright refused to worship and bow down to Caesar. And so they called them atheists. But to such a request, Polycarp responded not by turning and looking to the Christians. But he responded by turning and looking to the crowd. And he was, and it said that he pointed his finger to the multitude and he shouted to them, Yes, out with the atheists. Yes, out with the atheists. Well, as you would expect, the crowd now, even more furious and obviously offended, began to grow louder and louder and more hostile toward Polycarp, again, with the proconsul trying to persuade Polycarp to recant, began to promise him of his freedom if he would just but swear by the name of Polycarp and recant and refuse Christ. To which Polycarp responded with these famous words, For 86 years I have served God and He has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? Now growing less patient, the proconsul began to scream. And he began to pound and said, he said to, he said to Polycarp, swear by the fortune of Caesar now. Do it now. To which Polycarp retorted, and he said almost in a gentle tone, sir, Sir, since you seem so urgent for me to swear by the fortune of Caesar, and because you pretend not to know who I am and what I am, hear me declare with all boldness, I am a Christian. And if you wish to learn what the doctrines of Christianity are, appoint me a day and I shall preach them to you. With none of his warnings and threats working, the judge began attempting to intimidate Polycarp with death, saying to him, Well, I have wild beasts at hand, and I will cast thee to them unless you repent. To which Polycarp calmly again responded, Call them in. 
bring them in. For we Christians are not accustomed to repent of what is good in order to adopt what is evil. Then with the final warning, the judge said to Polycarp, seeing that the wild beasts don't deter you, then I will cause you to be consumed by the fire. Polycarp then responding with his own warning to the proconsul said, Well, you threaten me with fire which burns for but an hour, and after a little while is extinguished. But you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. And he ended by saying, Do not tarry any longer, but bring forth what you will. Now consumed with anger, the proconsul, he turned to the stadium and he declared Polycarp's execution. To which the whole crowd, the multitude, then bursted out screaming to condemn Polycarp by fire. Burn him by the fire. Burn him with the fire. Execute Polycarp with fire. Thus fulfilling the very words, as it were, that he spoke only three days ago to his friends that he must be burnt alive. Condemned by fire to be executed by the flame. While the wood was being gathered together and prepared and the funeral pile erected, we find Polycarp standing there in the middle of the stadium. Polycarp there was seen then to be reaching inside of his robes and he pulled out a letter. This was the letter that he carried everywhere that he went with him. It's a letter that was written to him by his dear friend Ignatius that was sent to him right before Ignatius' own execution 15 years ago. But as he stood there alone in the middle of that theater with this letter in hand, perhaps to find some voice of encouragement for that very moment, I believe that he fixed his eyes on these lines written by Ignatius to encourage Polycarp. And you can actually go find the letter and read it yourself. But Ignatius writes this in his letter. Polycarp, stand firm. Stand firm as as does an anvil which is beaten. It is the part of a noble athlete to be wounded and yet to conquer. And especially we ought to bear all things for the sake of God that He also may bear with us. Be ever becoming more zealous than what you are. Weigh carefully the times. Look for Him who is above all eternal and invisible, invisible, yet who became, invisible, who became visible for our sakes, impalpable and impassable, yet who became passable on our account, and who in every kind of way suffered for our sakes. And he ends with, a Christian has not power over himself, but must always be ready for the service of God. Now this work is both God's and yours when you shall have completed it to His glory. For I trust that through grace you are prepared for every good work pertaining to God. Well, with the funeral pile now ready, the soldiers proceeded to take and grab Polycarp's old body and they dragged him to be fixed with nails to the wood. But before they could pin him up, Polycarp, Now encouraged by the words of Ignatius, turned to the soldiers and at the last second he said these words to them. He said, leave me as I am, for I will not try to escape. My Lord is able to keep me by his power in that fire, for he is stronger than any of your nails. And then he began to pray and while he was praying they tied him with ropes to that wood, and the funeral pile was finally lit. And as the fire began to climb up and the heat began to rise, one of the members of the Smyrnian church who was there witnessing all of this take place, he gives an account, and he writes this. As the flame, change the slides, says, as the flame blazed forth in great fury, we to whom it was given to witness it, beheld a great miracle and have been preserved that we might report to others 
what then took place. For the fire, shaping itself in the form of an arch, like the sail of a ship when filled with the wind, encompassed as by a circle the body of the martyr. And he appeared within, not like flesh which is burnt, but as bread that is baked or as gold and silver glowing in a furnace. Moreover, we perceived such a sweet odor coming from that pile, as if frankincense or some such precious spices had been smoking there. The crowd watching all that was taking place there, they were nothing short of bewildered as Polycarp seemed to be protected from being burned by the fire. And so the proconsul, wanting to put an end to all of this as fast as he could, he gave the urgent order to the executioner to go and pierce Polycarp with a sword. And in doing this, that same witness who wrote what we just read, he writes that such a great amount of blood came out from Polycarp that it extinguished the fire, and thus extinguishing and ending the life of dear Polycarp. Now, as we consider the life and the ministry of, and even the martyrdom, as we've just studied, of Polycarp, as the students, as students of the church, friends, we need to ask, what was it that drove Polycarp to be the man that he was? And what can we learn from such a man as Polycarp? Which is where we transition to our third and final point, Polycarp's legacy. With the little that we do know about Polycarp, I believe that there exists a great many of lessons that we can extract and take away from him. Uh, but if there's anything that's been historically recognized about who Polycarp was and the work that he left behind, his legacy as it were, it's always revolved around his love for God's word and his love for God's church. The only work that we have in our hands today written by Polycarp it's his epistle directed to the Philippian church. Now, it's been said by Spurgeon in describing Puritan John Bunyan. He wrote, you guys probably know this one. He wrote, prick him anywhere and you will find that blood is bibbling. For he cannot speak without quoting a text for his soul is full of the word of God. For he cannot speak without quoting a text or sorry. For he cannot quote, speak without quoting a text, for his soul is full of the word of God. And so if this described John Bunyan, Polycarp was someone who had the very same blood type as Bunyan. He had the same blood type. Polycarp was a man who had the Bible running strong through all of his veins. It was pumping and beating hard and strong within his heart. And if you were to ever read or study this letter to the Philippians, you would feel as though you were reading, reading Scripture itself. Not to say that Polycarp's writing was authoritative nor superintended by the Holy Spirit in any way, but simply for the fact that his writings were so saturated with the Word of God. To provide some statistics here, in the very short letter written to encourage the persecuted Philippian church, we find that he quotes from Matthew, Acts, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Hebrews, 1 Peter, and from 1 John. I mean, if you really decide to go and read this letter, you'll quickly come to recognize that more than being a letter, it was more of this biblical blanket woven together with various pieces of fabric found all throughout Scripture. But you see, this was the way that Polycarp naturally spoke and wrote. He didn't know how to speak in any other way but in the language of the Bible. And beloved, this is how we need to be as the people of God, do we not? We need to learn the dialect of the Word of God. We need to be like Polycarp who was so filled with God's Word that every word that proceeded from his mouth seemed to be as if God were speaking through him. 
I mean, just imagine how greatly we would be used by God if we were to speak like this, if we were to be so filled with God's word within the home, within the school, Berkeley students, within our jobs and workplaces and even here within our church. It was Polycarp's love for God's word that manifested itself in shaping and molding him to be the man that he became to be. And it's been said that he often taught his church and his students that the proper doctrine, that proper doctrine must always lead to proper behavior. That the proper understanding of God will and must always lead to a proper response of life worship. In other words, it was Polycarp's love for God's word that demonstrated itself in Polycarp's love for God's church. People, those who personally knew Polycarp, they often described his personality and his demeanor to be strangely attractive. Strangely attractive. It drew them in in a strange way. Though he was no doubt a gentle lamb, a gentle shepherd and pastor to his fellow Christian and toward those he was ministering to, he was simultaneously known to be as fierce as a lion to any foe of the faith, toward anyone who would dare threaten both the unity and the purity of the church. His gentleness is perhaps no better demonstrated in a testimony made the very night of his own arrest. It was around supper time, we rewind back in history, it was around supper time that the Roman soldiers broke through the doors to take hold of Polycarp, who was at that very moment laying down upstairs in an upper room. Recognizing that the soldiers had finally caught up to him, one historian details out that Polycarp, in hearing all the commotion and hearing the soldiers bust through the doors, He went downstairs, not to run away, but to welcome the soldiers with great warmth and hospitality. Being that it was supper time, Polycarp proceeded to seat the soldiers down in order that something to eat and drink should be set before them. He began to feed his persecutors. The soldiers, confused and seeing the gentleness and benevolence with which this old man was treating them with, they began to ask each other, as they looked at each other, they began to say, was so much effort made to capture such a venerable man? After feeding the soldiers, Polycarp, he kindly asked them if he would allow him one hour to pray before they took him away to be tried. The soldiers, discussing amongst themselves, finding no reason as to why they would reject such a request, They stepped aside and allowed Polycarp to pray. And the historian continues to describe that during this hour, that some of the soldiers in overhearing Polycarp praying and praying for them, that they stood there in stunned silence while even some of the other soldiers began to repent for their sins. You see, Polycarp was gentle. He was a gentle of a minister. He was as gentle of a minister as they come, always taking every opportunity opportunity to compassionately serve and love others. Yet though he was no doubt gentle like a lamb, there was another side to Polycarp that people testified of. He was also described to be fierce as a lion, especially when it came to protecting the church of Christ. This side of him is no better demonstrated in a testimony provided by his disciple Irenaeus of Lyon in his work against heresies. He describes one incident that Polycarp had with the heretic Marcion, A man who taught, if I can summarize very generally, a false understanding of Jesus as not being the Messiah of the Old Testament. But in this specific interaction, Irenaeus, he paints this scene where Marcion, somehow in the same room as Polycarp, he 
locks eyes on Polycarp and he approaches him and he asks him, Sir, do you know me? Do you recognize me? Perhaps expecting Polycarp to be surprised and welcome him with a warm embrace as he so often does or something to that end. But in fixing his eyes on Marcion, Polycarp proceeded to respond to his greeting by saying, I do know you. I do recognize you. You're the firstborn of Satan. Beloved, there's a great lesson for us to learn here from Polycarp. He knew when to be gentle and he knew when to be fierce. He loved people and he cared for them with such a pastoral love that resembled his teacher John, which then reflected his Savior Jesus Christ. And he loved the people of God so much that he would go as far as destroying anything that would hinder or threaten the unity and purity of God's church. And this is exactly the kind of disposition that we need to have today, especially in this age today, do we not? Polycarp greatly loved God's Word. Very clear. And because he loved God's Word, he loved God's church. Well, now in closing, <coughs> excuse me. As we reflect upon Polycarp, it's safe to say that he was a man that lived up to his name, Polycarp, Paulus, Karpas. He was a man whose life and ministry bore much fruit for the Lord. And in many ways continues to bear fruit today. And friends, just as he lived up to his name, dare I say we have a duty to live up to ours as Pillar Baptist Church. We have this day an obligation as the church of the living God to be the pillar and buttress of truth. Gentle with one another. Bearing with one another's burdens, yet fierce against all those who try to come and harm the unity and purity of this church, including those within the walls and outside the walls of this church. Beloved, let us be a church that is so filled with the Word of God that there remains nothing for us else for us to do but to speak the truths of Scripture. Upholding the Word of God and defending the Word of God and preserving and preaching the Gospel of Christ to the ends of the world, which is what I want to do as we end our time together tonight. I want to end with the Gospel. And if there are any of you in here tonight who have yet to believe and trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior, I need you to pay special attention to this message of salvation that the Bible so clearly presents. God, who created all things, made us as people of worship. He made us to love God and to enjoy Him forever with all of our hearts, all our souls, and our strength, Deuteronomy 6.5. But rather than worshiping Him, we exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, Romans 1.25. And we fell into sin. And because of sin, there is none who is righteous. No, not one, Romans 3.10. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. But praise be to God that He did not leave us to perish in our sins, but He so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life, John 3.16. For the Son of Man, Christ the Messiah, has come to seek and save that which is lost, Luke 19.10. And it's to Christ that you must look to. It's to Him that you must trust in as your Lord and Savior. 
It's for you to repent and confess your sins, knowing that God is faithful and just to forgive you for your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9. For He gives to you this very promise this night, that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, Romans 10, 13. And it's when you trust in Christ that when you're found in Him, and if you're found in Him, that you are a new creation where the things of old have passed away and the new have come, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Unbelievers, this is the message that we preach as the church of Christ. That is what we've been given. And this is the message, unbelieving friends, that you must receive and trust and believe. And brothers and sisters, in Christ, this is the gospel message that we, like Polycarp, have been entrusted and is a message that we must never, ever, ever recant, even in the face of great persecution and death. Beloved, we owe much to many of whom we have never met. And it's my prayer that as we continue on in this series on the patriarchs, that through this study, through this series, that God would greatly enrich and encourage us all. Let's pray together. Our gracious Father, in examining the life and the legacy, the ministry and even the death, the execution of Polycarp. We look not to saints, and we look not to martyrs, but we look solely to Christ and to Him alone. For Your Word says that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved but Christ, in whose very name we pray. Amen.